This is an ABC podcast. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Coming up on the show, we'll take a look at how geopolitics is changing the face of tourism in the Pacific and the growth of military tourism. So we're trying to encourage that tourism from within the military ranks uh, for their family members because there's a lot of great stuff to do here. I mean, first of all, we all know about the significant and rich history. In Guam, campaigners are facing an uphill battle as vaping wins over more young people. These flavors are familiar to the kids, and uh, they've mentioned that um, some of their friends get into it because of, of, of how they are, are in a way, marketed, and, you know, because they taste good. And we'll hear about a mysterious connection between an indigenous Australian family and Indonesia. One of my younger sister was taken away. All they saw was her last footprints on the sand, and from there... Went missing. We'll have more on those stories coming up. I'm Evan Wasuka. But first, a technical glitch at Papua New Guinea's largest bank has caused chaos for customers across the country. The problem has allowed some people to overdraw money from their accounts, which they've now been told to repay. Others have seen their bank balances suddenly drop, as Marion Farr reports. Over the Easter weekend, Bank South Pacific customers across Papua New Guinea noticed discrepancies with their balances after what the bank's describing as a technical error. WIWAC resident Arthur Awingi saw 107 kina, or 50 Australian dollars, disappear from his account. I checked the balance through the ATM. Uh, My balance went down minus... BSP says the issue occurred during a nationwide upgrade to its banking system. The glitch caused incorrect balances to be displayed on customers' accounts. Arthur Awingi says it was a shock. I was a bit worried, but then the bank issued some statement that they will fix it very soon. The technical teams are fixing it. BSP hasn't answered the ABC's questions about the amount of money that was overdrawn and the total number of customers affected. More than 2 million people across PNG have accounts with BSP. In a statement on social media, BSP has apologised and says it's working to fix the issue. It says it did not deduct or deposit any additional funds to accounts, but warns customers who have overdrawn money will have to repay it. One of those customers is Rosemary, who doesn't want to use her last name. She spent 600 kina in an online purchase without knowing the funds had been incorrectly allocated to her account. It is a concern because if the technical issue did not happen, then I wouldn't do that. Rosemary says she's willing to pay back the money, but she's considering switching banks. I mean, I'm not going to be blamed for that alone because it's their issue, not mine. They should have tested the system before it is applied to everyone. Other customers have been upset with planned outages to BSP online and mobile banking services during the upgrade. The bank warned customers of the outages last week. Port Moresby resident Joyce Morrop hasn't been able to check her account balance since Friday. She says being unable to access online and mobile banking has put pressure on her family. Just this morning, the reason I went down to the shop is to get breakfast for my children, and now I can't do that. 
because the system is still upgrading. While ATM services are available, she says the lines have been long. I'm not looking forward to standing there for hours just to know what's going on with my account. She's hoping the issue will be resolved soon. Marion Farr with that report, with additional reporting by Tim Swanston, that's the ABC's PNG correspondent. For many Pacific countries, tourism is a key economic earner, but the disruption to international travel caused by COVID-19, plus the ongoing tensions over geopolitical competition between the US and China, is also changing the face of the industry. In the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, the government there is pivoting away from the Chinese tourist market and towards U.S. military personnel, that is. This is Rear Admiral Benjamin Nicholson of the U.S. Navy. So we're trying to encourage uh, tourism from within the military ranks uh, for their family members because there's a lot of great stuff to do here. I mean, first of all, we all know about the significant and rich history there is in this region, but there's also some world-class golf. There are some phenomenal resorts here. That's Rear Admiral Benjamin Nicholson of the U.S. Navy speaking there about the benefits of holidaying in the Northern Marianas and what's become known as military tourism. But what exactly is military tourism? Joining us now to talk more about this concept is Thomas Manglonia, Chief Correspondent for KUAM News, and he joins us on the line from Saipan. Good morning and welcome to Pacific Beat. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, just a quick note, that is uh, Rear Admiral Benjamin Nicholson, who is the commander of Joint Region Marianas, which is uh, the uh, management installation for the Department of Defense here in the Marianas. Thanks for that, Thomas. And let's get started with military tourism. Why is it such a hot topic in Northern Marianas? And so our new administration, uh, the new governor, Arnold Palacios, and Lieutenant Governor David Apatang, They announced in March that the Northern Marianas, as you said, is pivoting away from the Chinese tourism market. In a letter to a DOD official in the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, uh, Governor Palacios here says he wants to advance America's interest in the region with a growing tension related to China's reach into Taiwan. So in addition to that move within our tourism economy, the Northern Marianas governor asked the Admiral to advocate for more funding to stabilize the NMI's economy in the next DOD budget hearing in the U.S. Congress. Uh, Thomas, when we talk about military tourism, what would it look like? Now, we we heard the Rear Admiral talk about it there, but when you look at it, what what is Northern Marianas expecting to see? And so currently there are around around 5,000 military service members on Guam across the naval base there and also Anderson Air Force Base. Thousands more are expected to be on the way in the next few years with the buildup and the relocation of about 4,000 Marines from Okinawa, Japan to Guam. And so it's the goal of the Morale, Welfare and Recreation Program under Joint Region Marianas to get as many of those service members to visit the Northern Marianas uh, up north on their off time. So that program recently visited the island and met with local businesses and business owners hoping to partner and offer active duty members exclusive leisure activity packages during their off time. So they said the average age of those officers is 34 years old, 82% of them are men. And in their words, they want to make Guam the duty station of choice for these 
service members and promoting the other islands, including those here in the Northern Marianas and Micronesia, uh, helps them achieve that goal. Now, um, are there facilities on, on Northern Marianas to cater for these, uh, you're talking about 4,000 uh, servicemen who might uh, be lured to come and visit uh, in, the, in the Northern Marianas? Uh, right. Our hotels, uh, local businesses, uh, they showed up to that event that the uh, Department of Defense held uh, to recruit and basically um, help prepare the local businesses um, for this uh, intake. And so with tourism on the decline, um, our, our visitor arrivals uh, are still um, climbing up. So uh, the business community is definitely preparing to uh, receive those uh, tourists from the military. Now, with China was the big market, but how exact, how big numbers are we talking about prior to COVID COVID nineteen, and uh, if if you can take us through for context, right? So for context, pre COVID, uh, that amounted to about two hundred thousand tourists. Uh, the Chinese tourism market made up about half of the island's visitors. Again, pre COVID, um, and. For more context, the latest travel data from the Marianas Visitors Authority shows that in December alone, we had a total of 12,000 visitors compared to just over 2,000 in December the previous year. Uh, Most of those visitors are now coming from South Korea. Uh, Local leaders now are also looking to Japan and even Australia, uh, but numbers are still picking up in the last year, we saw just under 8,000 visitors. And this year, uh, we're, we're already tracking to be at over 30,000, but there's still a very long way to go. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Evan Wasuka on the program. This morning with me, I have Thomas Manglonier. He's the chief uh, uh, regional correspondent for KUAM News in the Northern Marianas. And we're chatting about the pivot that uh, Northern Marianas is doing away from Chinese uh, tourism market towards uh, what's been described as military tourism. Now, Thomas, what's the reaction like on the ground in regards to this uh, pivot towards military tourism? Right. There's a few reactions. Of course, you have those who are uh, very much welcoming this news. Uh, The business community is hungry for business. Uh, We have the local Saipan Chamber of Commerce, which convenes local businesses every month and advocates for their needs, saying that they want to prepare local businesses for this uh, type of military service, Uh, even looking beyond tourism and looking at the contracts and uh, goods and services that they can provide so that the military won't have to outsource uh, the those goods and services. Uh, but we also have some community concerns, of course. Uh, there are at least two major concerns we've heard in our recent reporting uh, that has to deal with the environment and culture. So when it comes to the environment, with increased training comes increased environmental risk and community organizations. Uh, we have one called Our Commonwealth 670. They express concern for the environment uh, but the military, and in that interview with the rear admiral, uh, continues to promise that they're taking care of the environment and that they have an extensive review process for its projects. Uh, but secondly, uh, especially when it comes to military tourism, the concern is about the impact of culture. So that includes being sensitive to the traditions of our indigenous Chamorro and Carolinian people, and just the overall pace and quality of life of residents and In that recent interview that we started uh, the show off with, uh, the rear admiral tells us that soldiers, 
he tells soldiers to only leave their footsteps behind on island. So it seems as though everyone's wondering how big those footsteps will really be and at what cost. Now, Thomas, you were mentioning there about the environment. What particular concerns were they in regards to the environment? Uh, were there specific uh, concerns? Uh, with the specific concerns, uh, one former lawmaker, Sheila Babata, brought up at a recent Chamber of Commerce meeting concerns about uh, impacts to water sources and uh, concerns to, uh, regarding our coral and our natural environment. Uh, right now, the military training plans and the exact um, locations and scope of it are still being ironed out in what's called the Mariana Islands uh, training and testing area. Uh, and those meetings happen on a quarterly basis. Now, you also mentioned about culture. And are there concerns around social issues as well, like having so many uh, large amount of uh, service military personnel on holiday within uh, the community? There are concerns of, of that, and uh, I've heard uh, directly from community members uh, of those concerns, uh, uh, given what has transpired on uh, the island of Guam in the past. Uh, but as I said, uh, we got a chance to directly ask the Rear Admiral about impacts uh, to the local community. Our small local community, the island of Saipan, has just under 50,000 people. Uh, so uh, he assures that uh, they... They uh, remind uh, any visitors uh, who are from their bases to uh, be good visitors in these islands. Thomas, thank you very much for spending time with Pacific Beat this morning to talk us through this uh, concept of military tourism and what's happening in the Northern Marianas. Thank you for having me. That's Thomas Manglonier. He's the chief regional correspondent for KUAM News in the Northern Marianas. Now, it sounds like the plot of a thriller movie. A young woman disappears from a remote beach in the outback of Australia, only for her family to discover decades later that she's moved overseas and is married with children. But it's not a movie. It's exactly what happened to Don Winemba Ganamba and his family. Erin Park with this report. When Don Winemba Ganambara first saw these photographs of Yongu people living in Makassar, he wasn't surprised. They're from... Region. They were taken in the port city in what's now Indonesia in 1873 and they corroborate oral and written accounts of Indigenous people moving from Australia to Southeast Asia prior to British settlement. It's prompted elders like Don Winnambar to come forward with knowledge of relatives who emigrated. Because my grandmother was still alive when I was sort of growing up. One day she told me, um, one of my younger sister was taken away. All they saw was her last footprints on the sand, and from there she went missing. Years later, they discovered his relative had left with visiting Indonesian fishermen and was living in Makassar, where she'd married and had children. In the 1990s, Don visited Sulawesi and met his relatives. They knew that they had a missing family. And also we had a missing family. So I'm going to try and go back again. An academic researching the interactions between Aboriginal people and overseas visitors says the photos are crucial evidence. It was just such a riveting moment to see actual people that were involved in the tripang industry but who had left Australia and travelled to Makassar. 
Professor Russell is due to visit Indonesia this year to investigate the links. I think there's every chance that there are descendants of the Indigenous communities who are perhaps staying in, who stayed in Makassar. Another Yongu family has come forward saying they have identified the young men in the 19th century photographs. They're now working with anthropologists and researchers to try to confirm the connection. That's Erin Park reporting. Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league. Featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League. Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Turning to Fiji, where the government of Prime Minister Siti Rambuka recently marked its 100 days in office. One of the key milestones was the announcement of the, of the resumption of the Great Council of Chiefs, which will reconvene in May for the first time in 16 years. Joining us now to discuss the implications of this is Fijian political scientist, Professor Stephen Ratuva, the director of the Macmillan Brown Center for Pacific Studies. Yandra Professor Ratuva. Oh, Hello, how are you? Good, very good. Um, thank you for joining us here in Pacific Beat. Now, why does Prime Minister Sidiveni Ramboka want to resume the Great Council of Chiefs? Uh, what does he hope to achieve by doing this? Well, it's, what, 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 it, it was one of the promises uh, during the election, and uh, uh, a large number of uh, indigenous Fijians in particular uh, are probably thinking along that line as well. Um, it's... Uh, um, it's something which uh, speaks uh, very deeply into the uh, history and the heart and the uh, consciousness of a lot of uh, uh, people in Fiji. It's an institution which has been there since uh, 1876, um, uh, and uh, over the years it has evolved into um, um, an institution of, uh, of status and of significance within the um, indigenous Fijian community. And uh, it had a political role uh, in the past uh, until um, it was abolished in the last uh, um, regime of um, Wen Marama. So it's, uh, uh, it's speaking to um, some of the expectations uh, coming out of uh, the promises which they made uh, in the last uh, election last year. Now, Professor Ratuva, when the GCC is, is reconvened in May, which is the plan, what's the implications for Fijian politics? How do you see, will things change drastically? Uh, depends very much on the role which the GCC is going to undertake. At the moment, they're going through a review process. And out of that review, uh, they hope to have something in place which will um, um, provide guidelines as to its future direction, its responsibilities, its roles, its function within the uh, political sphere as well as within the cultural sphere. So uh, it might bring about changes, depends very much on the kinds of uh, 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 new role, the new role it's going to, um, uh, uh, to undertake in, in the next few years. 
traditionally has the GCC, does it have much political power, the Great Council of Chiefs, or is it more of an influential role in terms of uh, Fijian politics? Well, historically, it's always been um, uh, in the beginning. Uh, it was more of an advisory body uh, to the governor of Fiji, and it evolved over time uh, since independence. Uh, it was uh, uh, an advisory body, by and large. And uh, uh, it also had political function in terms of appointment of uh, uh, members of the Senate as well as uh, of the uh, president. So, uh, 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 so it's been, it's been kind of mixed in terms of his role. Um, uh, there's an argument that perhaps uh, it should focus more on uh, issues of uh, of culture and identity and development within the uh, uh, Fijian community, and uh, to keep itself away from politics. So there's a very strong argument that it should uh, try and. Uh, distinguish itself from the actual political process in the country. What's the reaction been like in, in, on the ground in Fiji about the fact that the, this government wants to bring back the Great Council of Chiefs? Uh, probably, uh, probably mixed. There are some who argue that uh, the GCC has had its days. There are some who argue that it still has its uh, relevance and prominence in the modern world. Uh, and there are those who argue that... Uh, uh, perhaps if we reconfigure, if we redirect its path towards um, something which is much more functional in relation to, let's say, issues of uh, of poverty, of crime, of development uh, within Fijian villages, within the Fijian provinces, uh, so that people can connect with <laughs> with, with with those functions in a very uh, uh, practical way, uh, rather than just a uh, an institution. Of, uh, of authority, an institution uh, which has particular status rather than the actual function, um, and, uh, rather than any actual practical function on the ground. So, uh, yeah, there are mixed feelings. There's uh, perceptions uh, uh, which are, uh, you know, evolving around those. But the review which is taking place, we hope that something more substantive will come out of it in terms of uh, uh, the future direction of the GCC. I wonder, there's been concerns raised, but should there be concerns by other communities in Fiji who are not indigenous? And uh, what I'm asking, I guess, is should there be concerns from the Fiji Indian community about the return of the GCC and what this might mean to uh, uh, political equity, I guess? Yeah, there was uh, an Indo-Fijian leader already who said some time ago that the GCC, when he addressed the GCC, that the GCC belongs to the Indo-Fijians as well. Uh, the GCC can be um, can be a, uh, an instrument, an institution for reconciliation, uh, if it's used in that particular way. At the same time, can be an institution for division. We've seen this in the past, uh, in the previous coups where the GCC has played a very uh, uh, a mixed role. Um, on one hand, some members of the GCC were um, get towards ethno-nationalism and ethnic division, while some were much more reconciliatory. So I suppose the future of the GCC in terms of its acceptance by the various ethnic groups would depend very much on how reconciliatory its, its uh, role is going to be, how it can be used as a uh, uh, 
uh, a significant political force in bringing people together, the different ethnic groups together um, uh, as one nation rather than as a tool of division. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Evan Wasuka, and on the show with me is Professor Stephen Ratuva. He's the director of the Macmillan Brown Center for Pacific Studies in New Zealand. Now, Professor Ratuva, we've gone past the 100 days in office for the uh, government of Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka. What in the 100 days do you see as the major achievements that they've, uh, they've done so far in office? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, like any um, political party which comes into power in the first 100 days, it's very difficult to, uh, uh, to measure things. Um, certainly in the 100 days, a number of things have happened uh, in relation to, um, uh, let's say, a forgiving of the uh, scholarship debt, um, which is very significant in terms of uh, how, uh, you know, uh, a few hundred million dollars, I think it's about uh, 300 million or so dollars, which is... Uh, uh, in worth of debt, which students have uh, accumulated over the years, and that put, put that puts a lot of pressure on on their families and uh, uh, and the uh, young people themselves to pay up. Uh, that was very uh, significant, and as well as the reinstatement of the Fiji Airways uh, workers um, and uh, the women's rights to choose their names in the birth certificate uh, and other uh, official documents. Uh, that right was taken away. Uh, and um, um, and of course the repealing of the Media Industry uh, Development Authority Act, which uh, provided very draconian um, media regulations. Uh, so and then there are a few others uh, which uh, uh, have been um, either changed or slightly changed uh, in subtle ways. So uh, I mean the, the hundred days. Uh, uh, has been significant in the sense that it is 100 days which we may call the honeymoon period. Um, people are still celebrating the fact that it's a new era of Fiji. Uh, at the same time, a lot of work has been put into try and uh, uh, bring about some of those promises which um, uh, the coalition had promised uh, during the election. I mean, it's not uh, easy. I think it has been a challenge uh, for the government to uh, bring about some of the changes in the last 100 days because it, the coalition itself, a lot of their focus and energy was put in trying to hold the coalition together, uh, making sure it works. And it uh, seems to be working so far, which means that a lot of compromises have to be made in, have to be made in terms of policies, uh, in terms of direction uh, of political change. Now, Professor Atuva, in the past 100 days, we've seen the Fiji First Party uh, lose a lot of its members. Do you think it still poses a, a threat to the government of uh, Prime Minister Sidivini Rambuka? Well, historically, the Fiji First Party, uh, the power of the party uh, vested in two people. Uh, those two individuals have gone, and now there's a new leadership and a new approach, very different. The personalities are very different. Politics, in, by and large, in many ways, uh, depends very much on the leadership and the personality of leadership and their political ideology as well. So in this particular case for the Fiji First Party, there's been a dramatic change in that direction. So I think what we're going to see now is not so much weakening the party, uh, but the party becoming much more uh, reconciliatory, uh, much more, much easier to, for, to work with 
uh, across the, uh, if you like, the political divide. Uh, there are leaders uh, in the Fiji First Party who are prepared to, uh, um, to, reach, the, to reach out to the government uh, and start working together in the various issues, something which never happened before. So, uh, um, yes, in some ways, yes, the power of the party in terms of uh, how it was run had diminished. But we have a new group of uh, leaders who are very capable themselves, uh, who are much more uh, oriented towards uh, reaching out and engaging with the government in terms of uh, some of the strategic issues concerning the country. <clears throat> yes, uh, Fiji First Party does have a new, uh, a, there's a new opposition uh, leader in Nia Seru Ratu. But I wonder what, Frank Bainimarama, he ruled Fiji for 16 years. He's no longer the MP. Do you think he's still a political force to be reckoned with or, or are his days over in terms of politics? Well, it depends on what you mean by political force. Uh, if you think in terms of the leverage that he has to influence things, um, the leverage he had before was the political party. The leverage he had before was the military. The leverage that we had, he had before was the civil service. The leverage that we, he had before was uh, the media. Uh, the leverage that he had before was uh, uh, his control of the various institutions uh, within, uh, within Fiji. Uh, all those have, uh, uh, he has lost control of all these. In other words, his power, his leveraging capacity has, uh, has diminished significantly, which means that he has to reinvent himself and reinvent a new leverage, which he can use. Professor Atuva, thank you so much for spending time with Pacific Beat and sharing your insights. Oh, thank you very much. Vinaka Vakalipu. Vinaka that's Professor Stephen Rattuva. He's the director of Macmillan Brown Center for Pacific Studies. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. When you're younger, you don't really take note of the significance of this ritual until you're much older. Then you realize that you're proud to be part of this ritual. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. And it's time to look at all the big stories taking place across the region. And joining me this morning, as usual, is Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Evan. How are you? I am good on this Tuesday morning. And let's head um, and see what's happening. Uh, so the, now the Pacific has been getting used to high-level delegations. A senior Chinese diplomat is heading to Fiji and Australia this week. Uh, why is that and what do we know? Yeah, so China's foreign minister is being sent to, uh, to stabilise ties between the two countries ahead of an anticipated uh, visit from Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese uh, to China later this year. So this is reported by the South China Morning Post, uh, who reported last week that uh, Mr Albanese will visit in September or October to mark the 50th anniversary uh, of the first trip to China by an Australian people. That is yet to be confirmed, however. Uh, and it comes just as geopolitical tensions, as you mentioned, have been high uh, in recent months. Uh, China's also had a trying, uh, somewhat of a trying relationship with Fiji as well. Uh, Sidovani Rambuka, as we know, cancelled the country's police training and exchange agreement with China. And there was also a regional security proposal uh, proposed by China that wasn't taken up uh, by Fiji and a couple of other Pacific nations as well. 
Yes, certainly interesting times across the Pacific. Uh, lots of visitors, high-level uh, delegations in and out of the, uh, out of the region. Uh, we'll be keeping a very close eye on what happens there. And uh, definitely our report in Fiji, Lita Mavona, will be right there when the uh, vice foreign minister of China touches down in, in Suva or, or Nandi, I should say. Now, uh, uh, let's head over to PNG, where eight Indonesian fishermen who were arrested in 2021 will be repatriated this week, is that right? Yeah, so the eight fishermen, uh, they'd been detained for illegal fishing and illegal entry uh, in PNG waters back in 2021. They'll be handed over to Indonesian authorities on Friday. So this is reported by the Jakarta Post, who published a statement from uh, the Indonesian Foreign Affairs Department. Uh, it read the fishermen will be handed over uh, just at the PNG and uh, Indonesian border on the Tarasi River. A uh, bit of a high, high security situation as well. Uh, PNG police, customs, immigration, and as well as defence force officials will all be in attendance. Well, it's it's good to see that this is happening after so long. Uh, they've been there for a couple of years now. Now, does this article uh, state how much Ill- illegal fishing actually takes place in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, so this is quite interesting. Yeah, Indonesia's illegal fishing watchdog estimated that around 60 uh, in, uh, Indonesian fishing vessels actually ventured into PNG waters uh, when this incident take, took place back in 2021. I imagine that number is probably the same today. Um, so the risk of detention doesn't appear to be uh, deterring uh, some of these fishermen who are willing to take some of these risks. Um, interesting as well, Indonesia actually um, probably uh, is victim from uh, by as much um, illegal fishing as, as it does contribute to it. Um, Port Moresby has obviously ramped up their maritime security in recent years and there was also that incident last year where I believe an Indo- Indonesian fishing captain was actually uh, actually died for allegedly fishing some of those waters so it definitely uh, it causes a few headaches, that's for sure. Yeah, one of those issues where I'm sure authorities will be keeping a close eye on uh, across that border, PNG, Indonesia and even Australia. Now, time to talk sports. Yesterday we had on the show the head of uh, sports and news at the Fijian Broadcasting Corporation, and we were talking about the Singapore Sevens uh, and, and, and the frustration, I guess, the Fiji public is starting to feel. They've got nine tournaments without a win so far, which is very unusual. Let's head to Fiji. What are the papers saying about the Fiji Sevens men's coach, Ben Gollings? Yeah, so uh, he might be on the hot seat, uh, according to the Fiji Sun, who said the FRU board will be holding a meeting to discuss uh, what course of action to take regarding his future. So those were the words of the FRU chairman, or acting chairman, I should say, Daniel Whippy, who spoke to the newspaper. He didn't make comment uh, on Fiji's semi-final loss to New Zealand. However, the article states that uh, sources within the FRU indicated that an ultimatum was actually handed down to Mr. Gollings. Uh, to either win in Hong Kong or Singapore or get fired. Now, obviously, we we know now that they got silver and bronze, they didn't win at either of those two tournaments. So, uh, yeah, who knows? Do you think it's just a matter of time? We'll just have to watch the headlines very closely, I guess. But, yeah, they did did walk away with bronze, didn't they? And that's still uh, not a tournament win, I guess. Yeah, I think it's 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 probably fair to point out they are still in uh, Olympic contention. I mean, that's ultimately uh, that's probably the main thing you want to look after when you when you think about the World Rugby Sevens. It'd obviously be nice to win as well. So, yeah, while they might not have uh, lived up to expectations, but they are still. If the if Paris was to uh, start tomorrow, they wouldn't they would well and truly be there. Yeah, it was interesting what uh, Indra Singh, the head of FBC Sports uh, and News, said yesterday. He said it's all performance based. Mm. So uh, the, the number of tournament wins are very clear and uh, 
uh, we can see what happens. We'll see what happens next. There's a uh, there's a great saying in sport. What have you done for me lately? It doesn't matter what you've done. What you've done. Uh, what you've done in the past. Uh, well, well, we'll see what comes out of the situation in Fiji. But stay with us here in Pacific Beat because coming up, we'll have a look at that story about vaping in Guam and the battle camp- health campaigners are facing uh, to put a ban on vaping and e-cigarettes. That's coming up in the next five minutes. In the Fale is a brand new music show on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by me, Paola Tukefu. I'll be spinning my favourite tunes from dancehall to disco, calypso to country, reggae to roots, and hip-hop to house music. From across the era to keep the kids and the aunties happy. If it has a pumping groove, I'll be bringing it to you to bump you into the weekend. In the Friday, Fridays at 2pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're listening to ABC Radio Australia. It's Pacific Beat. I'm Evan Wasuka. Uh, stay with us for the big stories from across the region. Now heading over to the northern part of the Pacific. And the use of e-cigarettes or vaping is on the rise among young people. And some countries are moving to limit its impact. Palau recently imposed a total ban on e-cigarettes. That happened just last week. While Guam has proposed a law to outlaw the, to outlaw the sale of flavoured vape juice. Francis Darlisai of the University of Guam led a project last year to alert students to the dangers of e-cigarettes. He told Liam Fox it's a major issue on Guam with the rate of vaping among young people five times higher than in the United States. 25% of middle school aged children and for about 40% of high school aged children reported using e-cigarettes within the past 30 days. Along with that, about roughly 37% of middle schoolers reported uh, using e-cigarettes at least once in their lifetime. And around 60% of high school uh, students in in Guam reported using e-cigarettes at least once in their lifetime. That seems like an incredibly high figure. Uh, Yes, if you compare it to the U.S. uh, average nationally. Around that same time, uh, the U.S. national average uh, for middle school age uh, children in terms of their use of e-cigarettes in the past uh, 30 days was 4.9%. And for high school students, the U.S. national average uh, around that same time uh, was 20% of high school uh, students in the U.S. uh, reporting having used uh, e-cigarettes in the past 30 days. Why is that figure so much higher amongst young people on Guam? What local factors are contributing to it, do you think? Through focus groups with youths, uh, we have found that um, it's parental permissiveness. Kids who have more peers who use uh, e-cigarettes, uh, it's uh, ease of access. Um, we find that the kids uh, tell us that their older uh, cousins or siblings buy it for them, so it's easy for them to access it. Um, the norms in general uh regarding e-cigarette use among some circles here in, in Guam are is that it, it's not harmful. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we've heard uh, that some parents uh, purchase these products for their children um, thinking that they are not harmful and that they are, uh, are less harmful than cigarettes. Guam recently proposed a law to outlaw vaping juice. Do you think that's going to have an impact on this high rate of vaping? To be perfectly honest, uh, I 
don't know uh, if it, it's going to have a major impact. Uh, it is going to create an awareness among people that, you know, that vaping, there's something maybe harmful about it. Um, but in reality, uh, it's going to be difficult to enforce um, because from what I've heard, um, there's opposition to it because of how it's currently written, how the current bill, the, the draft of the bill uh, is currently written, and it allows for some loopholes. And so I think it's a question of the extent to which it can be enforced. Uh, and if, if it can be enforced, then it, it might be effective. Was vaping juice or the flavor of uh, vaping smoke a factor in the attractiveness uh, to youth? Did that come out in your focus groups uh, at all? Yes. Some of the youths uh, mentioned that it, it smells good. You know, it smells like bubblegum, uh, mango, pineapple, uh, some of these tropical uh, flavors. Uh, if you think about it, we live in a tropical island, right? And so it, it it's um, these flavors are familiar to the kids. And uh, they've mentioned that um, uh, some of their friends get into it because of, of, of how they are are in a way marketed and and uh you know because they taste good and they smell good so it's it's conceivable uh, that a ban on vaping juice flavored vaping juice could have some impact if if the flavor of the smoke is a factor yeah theoretically it it uh it would be effective if that's a factor um because we do know in the in the u.s at least the studies conducted in the u.s um these products are marketed to the youth. The companies know they're strategically uh, using these flavors and you know and and making it really marketable to the youth and palatable to them and and so if yeah if there's a way to to get rid of those flavors, theoretically it would, it would be effective. Palau has has gone further, much further, and recently made the decision to ban vaping altogether. Uh, do you think uh, Guam could benefit by doing something similar? It, it probably boils down to enforcing it. But I think, in in my opinion, a full ban uh, could be really drastic. It's a, it would be a drastic measure. But even if they did do a full ban, uh, I, I would have to question if they can actually enforce that ban in Guam. That's Francis Dalisai from the University of Guam. And he was speaking there to Pacific Beach Liam Fox. Now to Papua New Guinea and the project to get women and girls on surfboards and in a broader sense on an equal footing with boys and men. The idea is that boards are painted pink for girls and women to use and they're given to surf clinics and encouraged to hold positions in surf clubs. It's all captured in a documentary by former ABC correspondent Max Utridge. It's a grassroots grassroots movement to try and give um, equality uh, to women and girls in Papua New Guinea who don't enjoy that very much at all now. And it's through surfing and it's this, it's this movement that sort of sparked up through this Andy Abel, um, he's now a great friend of mine, um, and he's a civic-minded um, Papua New Guinean who is the head of the Surfing Association of Papua New Guinea. Some years ago, he got uh, through an Australian uh, surfer, fireman and from Victoria, 165 surfboards were donated to give to surfing, you know, burgeoning surf clubs in Papua New Guinea. They went up there, they were donated, but all the boys and the men just 
took the boards and the girls didn't get a look in. Um, the, the girls and the women weren't allowed to be office holders in surf clubs and he changed that. But anyway, with, with, the, um, with the surfboards, he came up with, you know, very simplistic but, you know, um, a reasonable uh, method of, of, of trying to get some equality. He painted half of the surfboards, the noses of them pink. So Rose, who you heard there, Rose is a, a surfer who surfs together with her husband and five boys. Um, Rose said, you know, if the, if the boys were caught riding those pink nose surfboards, they were girly girly men. <laughs> oh, clever. So it's all burgeoned from there. And that was the, um, that event that, um, that where we, where we filmed with Rose was the World Surf Life, World Surf uh, Longboard, Longboard Championships in Tapira a few years ago. And thankfully, and, and remarkably, uh, so many of the wonderful international surfers, surfers came on board to sort of help and promote. And one of them, the world champion from Brazil, even said, please, Andy, bring this movement over to the favelas of Brazil, and we want to do the same thing there. So the idea is really quite simple in a sense, isn't it? Getting men and women together, doing something that's normally exclusively the domain of men. Now, I mean, have you, it's a great idea. Are you seeing practical differences? I, th I think um, what Andy's seeing is that, you know, he, he made the breakthrough with the clubs to have surf um, women allowed to be surf officials. Um, how it translates down to day-to-day -day while we're not there with the cameras is, is, you know, I'm not sure. But I do know that, you know, you know there, there have been... Uh, female surfers who have travelled abroad now and, and competed oh, internationally really? under Andy's auspices. And um, it is a movement that's caught the attention of the other sports in Papua New Guinea because it's a crazy rugby league country, as you probably know, but it's also, you know, competes in all these other sports. And a bunch of the sports now have signed up to the, the Pink Nose Revolution Protocol, if you, if you will, and we're hoping that that sort of uh, momentum will take it right through to various sporting bodies and the education, because it's education is... You know, it's um, you know, it's quite dire in Papua New Guinea. The systems we don't, they don't have the systems that we have here in Australia. No, and I mean they really have got quite appalling domestic violence issues. And it's I mean it is described in the national parliament as a national shame, but it's very difficult to eat into it, isn't it? Well, yes, and, it's, and what it is is, is um, domestic violence, as you know, is an international scourge. You know, it happens here in Australia, it happens in all the Western nations we talk about, but we have the checks and balances and the police and the judicial system and the... Um, and the uh, the bodies that the social bodies that help out with um, you know th this issue, you know we have the checks and balances. They don't. They 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 have a really good police commissioner, David Manning, and he says we're almost powerless to to protect um, the women and uh, the, the the girls and women of Papua New Guinea. He said uh, one of the stats was about a couple a year or so ago was you know fifteen or sixteen thousand reported domestic, and that's out of 9 million or 19, depending on the new end's um, um, valuation of what the population of Papua New Guinea is. He said there was 16,000, a couple of hundred were prosecuted and 100 convicted. You know, I mean, that's just, mm. you know. And so there's no incentive. They don't. There's a logjam in the courts. There's a cultural thing about, you know, men's role and men being having the prim primacy in, in, in society. And it's education. And we hope this film will get put people on the screen to be role models, and that's what education is all about. And we refer to our cricketer, Scott Boland, who, um, who when he made his breakthrough into the Australian Test cricket team, he, he, he used a quote, it wasn't his originally, but uh, Adam Goods might have used it as well, which is, you can't be what you can't see. 
So he was referring to Indigenous cricketers being on, on, the, on the television screen and not giving role model impetus to, to young Indigenous Australians. And, that, and that's what we hope this film will, will you know, uh, well, prompt in Papua New Guinea. certainly, Rose, I mean, it is some gorgeous pictures and, and very stirring. I mean, Rose is sort of just the sheer sparkle and liveliness in her eyes and whole face is, is incredibly arresting. Um, look, the US Embassy has been very interesting in this, isn't it? We, we heard about boards being sent from Australia, but the, the support coming from the US Embassy and really a host of the sport's biggest international names are coming into this too. It's really spread. Yes, it, I mean, firstly, I mean, before... before before the American Embassy got involved, the um, you know there was a fantastic uh, Irish pathfinder in surfing, uh, Esco Britton, who who helped with the with this with the pink nose original pink nose revolution, setting up um, all those internationals from you know Australia, France, America, a bunch of world champions all got involved. But now the um, there's a very interesting chap at the U.S. Embassy in Port Moresby um, who. Uh, saw what was happening with the Pink Nose Revolution and decided that he would use funds from his sports envoy program, which they have around the Pacific and the world, to bring these Hawaiian surfers over, some really top-flight Hawaiians with a lot of influence, and say, bring them over, take them to Vanamo, this surfing mecca where, where it all started in surfing in PNG, and then get them to hold surf clinics, but also awareness clinics where they sat down on the beach and then discussed with the girls and the boys and the and the women and the men about what you know about their experiences in the wider, wider world, and without being too pious about it, but as we know, the Western world has is, is, has has this blight as well. Um, but it was an amazing week there. It was amazing to see the smiles, the infectious smiles, the influence that will go down through the ages. But this this uh, uh, Damien Wampler is his name. Uh, this American um, uh, person in the, um, in the in the U.S. Embassy in Port Moresby has started something pretty pretty special. Mm, yes, I mean you also included the Australian surfer Nava Young, who's uh, the daughter of. Uh, surf legend Nat Young, she's been over to PNG to quietly sit down and share views too, hasn't she? Yeah, she was. She was there in that in that um, WSL Championship event a few years ago, and um, and she was taken taken by it, taken by the problem, but also taken by the enthusiasm of the of her surfing compatriots in Papua New Guinea. That's filmmaker and former ABC correspondent Max Utridge, and he's speaking there to the ABC's Geraldine Doug about the Pink Surfboard Initiative in Papua New Guinea, and there's a documentary coming out about that particular work. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. Turning our attention to the Silver W Grand Final, Fijiana Jura beats the New South Wales Waratahs at 32-26. About the 60-minute mark, we're deep in the trenches. We're kind of fighting from behind, and then the crowd just broke out in a hymn. It kind of gave me, like, the warm and fuzzies, but at the same time, like, where are all the Aussie fans? Like, get around your Waratahs. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific? Thursday night, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're listening to Pacific Beat on this Tuesday morning. I'm Evan Wasuka, and that brings us to the end of the show. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Papua New Guinea time. But stay with ABC Radio Australia because Richard Ewitt will be back this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time for all the latest news and stories. But stay tuned with ABC Radio Australia. Coming up at the top of the clock is the ABC News Bulletin. But if you're interested in finding our stories, just head over to the ABC Pacific website. You can find our episodes there or you can find the individual stories. Um, But that's it from me for this morning. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Evan Wasuta.